Well, good morning and welcome. If you are new, my name is Ryan and I'm your pastor. I'm excited to be here today. Uh, for those of you who are regular visitors, you're wondering, okay, things have changed. Yes, we still left the fish up. The fish are all coming down this week. We wanted to have one more week of enjoying them. But you might have noticed we have some uh, different setups for seating. In the back, we have the cafe tables we brought in from the cafe. Now, this week they were blank, but I'm going to be recruiting some art teachers, and we're going to begin setting up some of these tables for different purposes. One of them is going to have a chapel family Bible where we can all write down prayer requests and notes, and some of you who are artistically inclined client can go do your little uh, Instagram Christian Jesus art thing, which is weird. I don't get it, but you can do it if you love it. Uh, and we'll have a Bible that's for the chapel people with prayers and all that stuff. And then we're going to have different places because I know that we, don't, we all learn differently. So for example, I'm an auditory learner. If I hear things, I can absorb them very well. Um, but most people aren't that way. A Princeton study said that of all these words that I'm saying, at best, you're going to remember maybe five to eight percent of them. So I know that most of you aren't auditory learners, but I know that if I give some of you a piece of charcoal and some sort of Egyptian paper, and then I preach and God's word comes to life in you and you end up drawing a picture of something incredible, then that could encourage others. So we're going to have stations for that sort of thing next week. Now, if you've been with us, we are in the book of Ecclesiastes, the most depressing book in the Bible, I think, personally. And that's why I probably love it right now. Um, it's summer. Everything is happy-go-lucky, and this book has brought a gravity back toward my focus because life is full of deep things. Life is full of tough circumstances. So on that note, today we are going to be flying through Ecclesiastes, the end of chapter 3, and I'm going to try to push all the way through Ecclesiastes chapter 4. The title of today's message is Better Together. Uh, let us pray as we are flipping there. Father in heaven, you've given us your word to challenge us to shape us, to advise us, but most importantly and above all else, you've given us your word to point to Jesus who frees us. So I pray that we wouldn't simply approach this morning's text like good advice, but that we would find the good news in it, that we would see you've made a way for us to be in communion with you. I pray for every person in here, from the youngest to the oldest, that you would transform and change our lives, that you would help us to love you and love others with all that is in us, and that we would bring that love to every street in our city. God, we love you. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. By the way, did anybody lose a teal poker chip? Because somebody was on a walk in Fishhawk, and they found a teal chapel poker chip. Now, I know if you're here, you're not going to admit it, because I would shame you publicly in Jesus' name. Um, but if you did lose it, know that you can go get another one secretly from guest services. If you walk over there and I see you pulling a teal one out, yes, I will judge you. But I'd rather you have one than not. And on the flip side, I mean, this thing is worn. It's got some love. And I, lo I like that we've handed enough of these out to where we're finding them. Like chapel members are like walking on the road and saying, hey, there's a, a chapel chip. And they pick it up and bring it back to me. So I'm going to recycle this one. And it's going to go into my collection that's growing more and more. And, uh, and I'll keep it because it's worn. It's like a good, worn Bible. Uh, here we are, Ecclesiastes 3. We're going to um, start in the latter half, verse 16, uh, 15. Before we get there, I need you to know that, um, that life is not always happy-go-lucky. And I think we know that in this area right now. There's been some crazy things happening this summer. I, I love it when school lets out and you get to see the dark side of suburban teenagers. 
It's like the whole year they're just pressing in. They're fighting for GPA. They're getting on their sports squad. Summer hits. They're popping off rounds at Park Square, shooting people in the feet, stealing from garages. And then next year they're going to go back to their 2.6 GPA. Um, I mean, as I'm being optimistic. And as I'm bad. If you're a high school, I'm sorry. Just don't steal stuff from garages. Um, but, but in all seriousness, that life has enough issues that, that I think we need to stop necessarily always playing the bubblegum version of Christianity. In today's passage, once again, Solomon is going to bring in the gravity with where he starts. Uh, I, I've been a pastor long enough to know that, that sin breaks things down, that people head into despair throughout their lives. If you've never experienced despair, you just haven't lived long enough. Um, one of the stories that is probably forever ingrained in my head, uh, aside from the deaths that I've experienced, because when you're a youth pastor, no funerals are, are good funerals. Not that many are, but there's the occasional funeral that I've done where at the end of it all, the person was like 700 years old, and they loved everybody, and they gave things away, and everyone is happy, and they're with Jesus. Those funerals are easier than the ones uh, like for a student that I had who, who told me every summer at summer camp, I'm not going to follow Jesus until I'm on my deathbed. I don't know that he knew his deathbed was going to come only six months later than that in a desert dying of dehydration. So those are the moments of despair or the moments where you get uh, the call that, that you've got uh, something wrong in your, your liver, something wrong in your lymph nodes, something wrong in your body, and one call changes our lives. And Solomon wants us to not, not simply skip over the gravity of those situations, but to realize that God wants to speak to us in the midst of those. And, and before we read this, I want, I'm going to make a public confession the church is often very, very, very bad at answering the tough questions. I, I've been at bedsides of people that are um, dying of cancer, and I've heard other church people say, well, if you only have faith, then God will remove the cancer from you. And, and at that point, I kind of want to just smack the person because then if they pray and the cancer doesn't go away, what are they going to think? I must not have faith. Or, or I've seen the people... In my office, there's one family in particular I, I recall as a younger pastor. We had a food pantry at one of the churches I was at, and there was a, a, an area where prostitutes would live, essentially, and we had the food pantry, with, so they would frequently come to us for food. And one had uh, two younger children, four and two at the time, and she would come every week to get food. And I remember her asking me, why, why is God so mad at me that he would make me do this, that this is where I would be stuck? And... Uh, and I remember hearing people say, well, if you get out of your sin, then God will take care of you. And, and I just don't know that that's necessarily the best church answer. Some of us in here have been burnt by churches. Today we're talking about how community is better together. Some of you in your mind are thinking, I've been around churches long enough to know that I keep church folk at arm's distance because I've let them in before and they've messed up my life. I've let them in before and they've hurt me, they've attacked me, and, and I'm with you. So keeping that in mind, let's read First, the most depressing part of this book, perhaps, and then we're going to um, plug right through into the community part. Verse 16. This is Solomon talking about um, what he sees. Moreover, I saw under the sun. Everyone say, under the sun. That was weak. You guys haven't had enough coffee. Everyone say, under the sun. Okay, that's better. That's more caffeinated. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. 
for there is a time for every matter and for every work. So, so let's stop right here. Right now, I, I, love, I love this passage because Solomon's reminding us, under the sun. Now, every time he says under the sun, what he's referring to is life apart from God because God is in the heavens and we are under the sun. We are trying to box out our life and say, we are here, God is here. And under the sun, Solomon is going to give us a very gloomy view of life. And he says, under the sun, I saw justice was traded for wickedness. Now, I don't have to really go into modern news to, to show you this, but we have many, many instances in our culture where what's right has been called wrong and what's wrong has been called right. It's a twisting up of the way things could and should be. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. That is a very, very bad thing. And, and unfortunately, I think we've, we've sort of spliced off into the world where we know how the fundamentalist angry Christians are going to respond to any given thing, and we know how those on the other side of the spectrum are going to are going to respond to whatever topic it is, whether it's a shooting, whether it's an, an LGBT thing, whether it's a, an abortion thing, whether it's a gun rights thing, an election thing. We've almost just swung so that nobody's in the middle, and we predictably know who's going to say what. Now, I've been, um, I've been reflecting on this election year service, and I loaded up my Twitter feed and my Facebook feed. I went through that famous passage about love. Love is patient. Love is kind. And I started thinking about it as it relates to politics. Okay, love is patient. Who's more patient? Hillary or Donald? Love is kind. Who's more kind? And I just asked myself, I went through the list. Boom, 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 boom. And I know some of you are already thinking like, well, I know who's more patient. I don't know. I don't know if patience exists there. Or, or who's more humble? I don't know. There, there's an exchange that's happened, and, and Solomon wants us to know that God is going to judge what's going on in this world. And, and if you're here for the first time, you're thinking, here it comes. I knew the preacher would get to judgment. Bring down the gavel on me, brother. I'm not going to bring down the gavel on you. God brought it down on Jesus for you, for us. But here's what he says. God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, so that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. That's a very good compliment. Husbands, never call your wife a beast. It doesn't work out. Um, for what happens to the children of man uh, and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to the dust all return. Now, if you're reading this as a follower of Jesus, you've got to be thinking, okay, wait a second. Either Solomon doesn't believe in eternal life or, or something else is going on here. We need to remember that this whole passage is under Solomon's outlook of under the sun. So under the sun, we are no different from the beasts. Your pet fluffy will die. You will die. If you have a turtle that lives 200 years, you might die first, but it eventually will die. The reason I haven't bought pets for my kids since Bob the betta fish is because we went through seven variations of Bob the betta fish, and I had to comb Petco for the exact same color shade so that my kids wouldn't know that Bob kept dying. And, and the thing was that we called him Bob 2, Bob 3, Bob 4, Bob 5, Bob 6, and I was like, I'm Bob done. And, and now my kids are asking for dogs, 
and Silas doesn't like dogs. My wife's allergic to dogs. I like dogs because I'm Filipino, so it's like a backup plan for survivalism. Is that too, is that too real for you guys in Fishhawk? It's because you guys call your dogs children and stuff. That's weird. They're not children, you know. I, you don't pick up your children's poop under the grass. Anyway, you guys are making me lose my train of thought. The train's pulling out of the station. But we're, we're the same as the beasts under the sun. We all die. There, there's no eternalness under the sun apart from God. If we put our life in a box and say, God, get away, we die, nothing happens. We go to the dust, to dust we shall return. So Solomon is having this glim, gloomy outlook on life. And I'm flying through this because I want to get to the, the community part. Um, but, but the word I don't want to miss is that he, he sends us through these seasons for testing. He sends us through seasons of difficult times as a sifting, and I, I don't need to get into like the Greek background of that word testing, but basically it's an ongoing sifting. It's an ongoing proving. It's like, it's like he knows that we are made of gold, but we have impurities, so he's melting us and forging us over and over again to get the impurities out. And family, it hurts. It hurts to get proved, to get sifted, to get the imperfections pounded out of us again and again and again. It hurts when you, you marry someone and then you find out you're married to that person, like forever, right? I, I think about my wife. Like, she married me, and then one day she realized, I actually have to stick with this guy. <laughs> and I know that there's always that person in the marriage. I'm, I'm that one. I'm the one that's in, intolerable, and I have an answer for everything. You, you can't out-talk me. And then my wife said, I'm, I'm saying I do to you forever, so pray for her. <laughs> but, but there's this testing that happens, this continual purging of, of impurities in our life, wh whatever the situation is. And, and I know that as I, I've gone on to read and study and think about your lives this week, I've tried to put myself in your shoes because the testing that I go through as a father of young children is very different than the testing that some of you are going through as you're sending your kids out. There's a new testing. Right? And I've had some experience of just peering into that because I've seen couples that they finally get their last kid out of the house and then they look at each other and they're strangers again and they think, I don't remember who you are. And then I've seen the, the struggle of people as they, they get a little bit older and there's the financial burdens. When they retire, how am I going to make this work? Where am I going to live? Am I going to go to my grant? What's going to happen next? How, how long can this go out for? And all of these different pressures, God is sifting us gently because he loves us. He's proving us and testing us because he loves us, not because he's mad at us. And I know that some of you grew up in a church picture where every time something bad happens, that was God smacking your wrist. And that's, that's just not the case. He's not mad at you, hitting you, because he's angry and hateful and spiteful. He loves you like a father. The same way that when my kids run out into the street, I don't like gently say, just come on back, sweetheart. There's an F-150 rolling down at 50 miles an hour. I scream. Savannah, get out of the street. What are you doing? I'm getting the mail in the middle of the street. Because I love my kids, not because I, I hate them. But some of us have, have had that ingrained in us for so long that as soon as a car breaks down, I must have done something wrong. As soon as a relationship is strained, you're thinking, I must have done something wrong. And, and God doesn't work that way with his kids. Okay, let's, let's keep moving because I want to get to chapter four primarily today. This is the evil that is under the sun. Man, this is an evil. 
Again, verse 1 of chapter 4. I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. So this is under the sun thinking. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. So he saw oppressions and the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Look how, listen to how sad this guy is. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So Solomon's going to outline evil deeds for us. And the first, you're, you're inclined to think, okay, oppression, that's an evil deed. Well, yes, but that's not what I think he's primarily talking about. Because Solomon says, I see the oppression, and they've got no one to comfort them. And then I see the people who are oppressing others. So oppression, that's your, you're an employee in our culture. If you're being oppressed, or if you're an oppressor, you're an employer, right? You know the difference, boss, not boss. And we don't have it the same slavery sense. But both of them, Solomon said, there's a great evil under the sun. These people have no one to comfort them. So he's going to begin merging us into the topic of this chapter, which is life is better together if it's done well and if we can rise above life under the sun. Now, I don't know about you guys, but um, I, <laughs> I love life. I love life so much I want to move on from this one to get to the next one. Because this life is hindered by things. I shared with some of you um, two weeks ago, I blew out my back. I had a spasm in my back from coughing, okay? I didn't play basketball. I didn't get tackled. I didn't pick up a heavy object. I coughed. That's all that it took. So life for me is getting to that point. And I've, you guys have told me, some of my friends in here who are in the next generation up, you've said, oh, man, you just wait. This week you coughed. You're going to spasm me back by breathing next week. Like it just keeps coming. And everything's creaking, everything's aching. Like Motrin isn't just like a, a relief of pain. It's what I put in my Cheerios, okay? It's how I deal with life sometimes, it feels like. Now, Solomon wants us to see, though, that no matter what's happening in life, no matter how much life is deteriorating, there's something that we need to get us through. And they're enemies of community. There's enemies of life together that he wants to press into us. And the first one is comfort. Now, some of you in here, we pretend like we don't need comfort. You, you say, okay, my life's good. I don't need any help. I don't need any comfort. I'm going to take care of this myself. And, and I know that that's wired into some of our culture. We hide our weaknesses. We don't want anyone else to see that we're weak. We do this at church. We're professional cover-upers at church. We, we could be, as I've said before, having the worst morning of all time. We could be nearly um, setting our car in cruise control and jumping out the, the door on the way to church, but as soon as we get here, we're smiles and happy because everything's all good. I don't need any comfort. I mean, I might have just wanted to, to take my children and throw them out the window on the way here, but now that I've pawned them off on somebody else, I think I could breathe easy for two minutes. Some of us have marriages that are, that are hanging by a thread, the slightest of threads. I mean, my, my son lost his first front tooth this week, and he was scared to let me pull it out. And, and one of my buddies um, back in Los Angeles, he, he was a, an athlete. He was an Olympian guy. So he pulled out his daughter's tooth by wrapping a fishing string around it and tying it to his javelin that he won medals with and throwing it. So I said, Jackson, you saw it. Mr. Brian did it to you. Let Daddy do it to you. I'll tie a shoestring around it. I'll tie it to my Bible, and I'll throw it. No, Daddy. And that thing hung on forever. It just spinning around in circles. And some of you are laughing. Some of you are thinking, wait, 
That's exactly what my marriage is like right now. It's, it's a single thread, and it's spinning in circles, and I'm scared that if I say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, go the wrong place, it's just going to fall apart. Solomon wants you to know that, that the enemy to community, the first one he wants to talk about, is having no one to comfort you. The great evil under the sun is being alone. Whether you're an oppressor or you're being oppressed, if you're alone, that is an enemy to your joy in life and in Jesus and in God. He's going to get so depressing here because listen to what he says about people who have no one to walk with them. He says, I thought it was better for those who have already died. I looked at those who were oppressed. I looked at those who were oppressing. They had no one to comfort them when they were having a bad day. And I thought, I'd rather be dead. And then he one-ups himself and says, wait, even better. I'll bet it's better for those who were never even born because they've never had to see the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Now, now here's where we're going to get to this list of things that are going to fight against your relationships. If you want good relationships, you've got to examine your heart for these and be honest with yourself. And I'm not going to pretend that any of us are going to be dishonest. But here we go. Verse 4. Then I saw all the toil and all the skill in, in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and striving after the wind. Okay, let's stop here. So here's first enemy, no one to comfort them, no one with you. That's enemy number one. Enemy number two is jealousy, envy. Now here, here's what I love about this. He says, I saw all of the work and all of the work that was being done, all of this work was, was because of envy toward other people. Now, I'm not going to pretend that anyone's going to dive into this level of honesty because this is level 10 honesty right here. But without raising your hand or giggling or nudging your spouse, how many of you have ever rejoiced when something bad happens to somebody else? I know that I'm not the only one, okay? Uh, or how many of you have ever been mad at somebody simply because they got something that you want to have? So, so I think about this with the car game all the time. I love cars. I love them. The, the weird thing about cars is that, you know, I'll save up my money. I'll watch Fast and the Furious. I'll get some car. And the new car is sweet for like a half a second. So I got a car. It's a 2014. And I'm all up in this 2014 car, you know, because some pastors, they drive hoopties. Like me, I drove hoopties most of my life because I give my wife the better car. And I get my car, and I'm all pumped on my car. But then, you know, my car's a 2014, and then one of you guys goes out, and the next year you get like a 2021. I don't know how the car industry works. It's weird. Like they come out 17 years in advance, right? <laughs> so, so all of a sudden, I have the old toy, and you've got the new toy. And all of a sudden, no one wants to see my car because my sunroof is less cool than your car that can drive itself, park itself, cool your beverage, warm your beverage, shoot children out, eject seat ports, whatever. And I got the old toy. And this is what Solomon's saying. Look. If you're a jealous person, it's going to wreck community because you're going to go around constantly comparing yourself to other people. Whether it's a phone, whether it's a car, whether it's a house, whether it's a spouse, this comparison game will wreck your relationships. And we do it with everything. Everything. Every sport that I've played that my brother played, I wanted to be better. My kids do it right now with, with fighting because some of their friends are taking Taekwondo, but I won't let them take Taekwondo because they're already too violent. So they just pretend they know it, and they ask me to put on movies like The Karate Kid, the new remake, not the original gangster one, and they'll do karate to each other. Keep in mind, one of my kids is like seven feet tall, and the other is like an Oompa Loompa. So it's not a fair fight. 
Silas wins every time, the little guy. But there's this constant competition, and they're constantly at each other's throats. And, and we don't grow out of that. We, we do it with our phones. We do it with our cars. We do it with our houses. And there's this, I'm not going to pretend we're going to admit to this, but there's this sick thing that makes us feel really good about ourselves when we get something new, right? I mean, don't admit this to yourself. I'll admit it for myself. Every, every new thing. If I get a pair of new shoes, I want to wear them as soon as possible. If I get a new pair of jeans, I don't just put them in the stack. They are on the top of the stack. If I get a new shirt, you'll be able to tell because it'll be worn on Sunday and it won't be wrinkled. If I get a new car, if I get a new stereo system, I'm bumping it up. If I get a new house, I'm having a housewarming party. And there's this weird sense that we all have this in us. And, and no one wants to admit it, but having the new thing is really cool until someone else gets it and you want to eat them. Oh, the flip side of that, of jealousy toward others, is when something really, really good happens to someone that you think doesn't deserve it, right? Somebody gets a, an inheritance. Somebody wins a lottery. Somebody gets some sweet sweepstakes victory. Somebody gets everything in life. I was talking with someone about this recently, and I said, yeah, it's like, a, it's like that football player, sorry, soccer player for you American folk, football for the English types. Christian, Cristiano Ronaldo, you guys know that guy? Okay, so A, he's a multi-multi-millionaire. He's extremely athletic, and to top it off, he's insanely attractive for a dude. Now, I was talking with one of the other uh, football fans, soccer fans in here, and I, and I said, this just isn't fair, man. Like God should have given him facial warts or something. <laughs> but no, he gets it all. And, and I watch these, and I ah, I should have that. Why does he get that? Why don't I get that? Or I look at other people who are more attractive, less attractive, more rich, less rich, and I, I gauge myself to make myself feel better and put others down. This is a destruction of relationships. So first is not having anyone to comfort you. Second is uh, being jealous and envious. Third is uh, right here, verse six. Better is a handful of quietness. Oh, sorry, skip verse five. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. So if you don't know Hebrew, this is basically saying, don't be lazy. Laziness will destroy relationships. Laziness will destroy relationships because nobody wants to constantly provide for another person. You only do that so long, right? And it's called toddler years. So when your kid is born, you have to care for them or they die. When they become toddlers, you care for them because they can kind of care for themselves, but they'll make more of a mess of it than you will. When they get to three, four years old, you start to let them be free. You give them the vacuum. You give them chores to do. But here's what you don't want to do. No parent wants the 37-year-old living in their house feeding them Gerber out of a plastic spoon, right? Nobody wants that. Now, we don't want that because we know laziness is bad, but we let laziness creep in to so many of our relationships. We let laziness creep in to parenting, to marriage, and, and we lose intentionality. Now, this is, a free, this is free, free advice for you. Nobody ever ever, 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 ever accidentally falls into an intentional life. You're not going to add intentionality to your life on accident. You know, people tell me all the time, 
you know, oh, we got pregnant, oh, congratulations, God, blah, 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 were you planning this baby, you know, and they'll say, oh, it was an accident, or this baby was a surprise. I mean, talk about the biggest surprise of your life. It's like an 18-year surprise. Surprise! And, and I, I love when they tell me, like, oh, no, no, it was an accident. You know, we didn't mean to get pregnant. And in my mind, I'm thinking, like, do they see the same picture I see? Were they just walking through the hallway, and it was dark, and they tripped nude and fell on each other, and a baby came? Like, is this, what does accident mean? to you guys with pregnancy, I don't know. With marriage, same, same way. Y- your marriage is not gonna grow on accident because the default mode I- is what these young people call Netflix and chill, okay? You get home from work, you're exhausted. So you put something on TV and you've got that part on the couch that knows you so well, it says welcome home when you sit in it. And unless you, unless you switch this, if you're, if you're going to be a lazy person, your relationships, your community will be torn apart because you won't have an intentionality that says, no, before I put my rear in there, I need to love my wife, I need to love my kids, I need to love my neighbors, I need to get things done. Now, some of you do this naturally. Some of you are the people who, who I love. I hope at least two of my three kids end up this way. You have the, um, the I can't sit down disease the one where you come home and all of a sudden you start doing everything. And we have one of these types of people in my house right now. I'm not going to tell you which person it is. But the other one of us will just sit there comfortably while the other one works very hard. The hard worker, in case you're wondering, is my wife. I'm trying to earn romance points right now, public romance points. And, and it takes, there's like a threshold for me where sh- she'll be wiping down the counters and I'll think, yeah, I should probably get up and help with that, but I won't. And then if she goes to chore number two, okay, now she's like, not just wiping on the counter, she's, she's really like deep cleaning something over there, the stove or the microwave. I'm like, I should really get up and help, but I won't. And then it's always when she gets to the floors and she's cleaning the floors like Cinderella. I'm thinking, nope. You thought I was going to be good there, right? So I have to wake up every morning and tell myself, Ryan, today you're going to love your wife and lay down your life for her. And it's, it's working slower than I'd like, but it is changing things. And I'm setting up specific goals that I want to have with the way that I spend time with my kids. Because it's easy for me to say when they say, Daddy, can you go outside and play? Can you go outside and play? No, 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 no. So now I've got this rule that I'm trying to hit, which is 60 minutes of playtime a day with my kids. And it's making it so I can't say no as much. Daddy, can we play? Yes. Do you please want to play inside in Jesus' name? No. I want to jump in the trampoline where the hellfire is raining upon us. Okay. Same with my wife, learning to be intentional because laziness will break this apart. You're not going to wake up one morning and all of a sudden be like, I have a plan and my life is all working perfectly. My wife loves me, my kids love me. Everything at work is going great because it just naturally fell into place. No, you have to make a plan. You have to not be lazy. You have to not fold your own hands to the point where you've got nothing to eat and you have to eat yourself. That's what that passage is talking about because laziness will break everything down in your life. Next verse, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. I'm going to keep on going. Verse 7, again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So the last one uh, on this list is discontentment. At least on this list, we're going to hit one more list. 
So first, you have no one with you, no comfort. Second, you're jealous. Third, you're laziness. Fourth, you're discontent with where you are. So Solomon wants to tell us, look, if all you do is work and you're never content with it, you can never have enough toys, you can never have enough stuff, you can never have enough money, you will destroy your relationships. You will not be able to live in community because you will never be satisfied. You'll never be able to have rest in one hand and work in the other. These are what we call in our culture workaholics. And a lot of times workaholic nature is because they're diverting away from something that they feel inadequate to serve within. So you, you throw yourself into work because you don't know how to be a good dad. You throw yourself into work because you don't know how to be a loving husband. And it's easier to do things that you know how to do than to, than to replan and reevaluate your life in other areas. Now, the most fascinating thing about this as I was researching, in 2014, Wall Street Journal published an article talking about the happiest people that exist. And they came to a conclusion that it's, it's not just the most wealthy that are, are ha the happiest people. There's a certain level where, like, yes, when you don't have to think about your electric bill, then you'll probably be a little bit more stable on the stress level. But after that, when money adds up, the Wall Street Journal found that the happiest people are the ones not necessarily who have the most, but who spend a certain way. The people who invest in their experiences and in their relationships rather than just investing to get more and more and more and more and more. And, and as I sat there reading this article, and I have a link if any of you want to read it, I was just blown away. I thought... This is so weird that the Bible and the Wall Street Journal are saying the same thing. That, that this media and God's word are saying, look, you can work all you want, but it's not going to bring you happiness. It's not going to bring your relationships fulfillment. Because if you are constantly working and never pouring into people, what is that work going to be for? And Solomon says, what am I going to do? Just die and then someone else takes it? It's all going to be for nothing. So, to, so make sure you surround yourself with people who will comfort you. Make sure you're not a jealous person, a lazy person, and a dissatisfied person, a discontent person. Because he, here's the good thing. We're going to switch right now into this marriage passage. Are you ready? If you've been to weddings, you've probably heard this. Verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? That's not a pickup line for college guys, by the way. Um, if one of you guys ever says that to like another young girl, I will beat you. Hey, baby, the Bible says we got to keep warm. No, it's not good. <laughs> and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So here's the thing about being uh, alone or with somebody. And I'm gonna come all the way circling back around. The people who were oppressed or oppressors, they had no one to comfort them, they had no one to give them advice. Now this is where it gets hairy, fam. In the church, we have professional advice givers. I call them jerks, <laughs> okay? They have an opinion about everything under the sun. They, and, and because I'm a pastor, I'm used to people's opinions. People send me their opinions. I graciously hit the delete button to so many opinions. Not yours. You guys only speak kind things. No one in here has ever sent me an angry email ever once. But if you have one for me, please do send it just with your name. Because if it's anonymous, um, I, I have this ritual where I, I wear a loincloth and I burn it in my backyard and do chants to the fire gods to envelop you, okay? That's not true. Most days. If you don't have anybody with you to give you advice, 
your life and your relationships will suffer. And here's what I mean by knowing people to give you advice. Having someone that you know deeply cares about you enough to tell you the truth, but actually cares about you enough to not be stabbing you in the heart with a dagger, a metaphorical dagger. Now, some of us won't even do that with our spouses. Some of us know that in our marriages, uh, we, we have the eggshell effect where we can't, we can't say certain things about my spouse because if I do, man, they will, pew, the cuckoo will come out of the clock. The beast will leave the basement. But some of us don't even have friends that could speak into our lives in this way. And what happens is this. If you grow older and older and older, there comes a point where because you've never let anyone speak into your life, it becomes harder and harder and harder for anyone to be able to do it. It becomes more difficult for you to let somebody come in and say, hey, I think this is wrong. And if no one's told you you're wrong in your recollection, you've probably become that person already. Now, now the good news and where we have to shift gears here is that we've got something in Christianity called the gospel. The gospel. And it means that we are worse than we ever thought we could be. You are a wretched human being, no offense, I'm telling you absolute truth right now, because you have breathed out your breaths and not 100% of them have been directed toward God. Probably not even 90%. Probably not even 30%. I'm going to guess not even 2%. Maybe 3% for those of you who are at VBS. But, but then I heard other things happening after VBS. I mean, kids can take our patience wick and shorten it right down, right? So all the VBS people, they're all tired right now. My prayer for them as they went home, this is an honest-to-the-Lord prayer. God, help these people not want to destroy their spouses when they get home. Because I sent home an army of exhausted workers that worked for five days tirelessly to teach kids about the love of God. And I know, because I've done VBSs before, that when you get home, you left all the love of God in the buckets back at the chapel. And there oftentimes is nothing left in your living room or the bedroom or the kitchen. Do you have someone that can speak into your life that loves you well enough to be able to tell you the truth? To say, hey, your life is running crooked right now. If your spouse is not that person, you, there needs to be some reevaluation. If you don't have friends that can do that to you, there needs to be some reevaluation. And then on the flip side, are you able to take criticism? Now, taking criticism is one of probably my most difficult things for me personally. So whenever someone criticizes me, before I say anything, I try to remind myself of this. I'm worse than this person thinks that I am. So whatever they're bringing to me, I say, God, help me see any truth in their words so that I can change and become more like Jesus in this specific area. Whether it's being lazy, whether it's being prideful, whether it's being angry, whether it's being frustrated, whether it's being resentful, whether it's being a gossip, whatever it is, I need to say, God, because you love me, at the worst and lowest that I could possibly be seen, I can let this person speak into my life and not let it crush me. Because here's the reality. If we're here and all we're doing is managing our life and, and being jealous when it's okay, gossiping when it's okay, being angry when it's okay, and thinking that we it's all about us and not about God, then it will be very, very easy to be offended when people come to us with something. The easiest way to find out if you're struggling and believe in the good news of Jesus is to see how offended you get when someone accuses you of something that you've done wrong. If you get offended and fly off the handle, you probably think you're better than you actually are. If you can take criticism and turn that into an apology, then you're probably on the right path. 
my daughter will not say sorry for anything. So she does this thing or did this thing. I had a reckoning with her where she crossed her arms. She goes like this, huh? And then she thinks, at least I think she thinks that the phrase, it's not funny, means I'm mad at you because sometimes when my kid, my boys get in trouble, I laugh and they say, it's not funny. And then I try not to laugh more. The parents have all done this, right? You're like, <laughs> well, Savannah crosses her arms. And just lately I said, put your arms down. So then she does this. And she walks like this. And she'll look at me, it's not funny, like the Hulk. And I tell her, I said, don't you walk away from me like that. Put your arms back. Uh, put your arms down. And then she's doing this thing, because she now she can't do any of her moves. I've taken her arms, and I've taken her legs. Like, no, I don't, I'm not sweeping her. I'm not doing like, Johnny, sweep her leg. I'm just telling her, like, don't walk away from me like that. So now she's doing this, like, as tight as you could possibly be. And, and so I held her in front of me one day, and, uh, and she had done something bad. I think she'd kicked one of the kids in the face or something. I said, say sorry. No! Put your arms down. You say sorry to your brother, Turner. No! So we sat there, and I'm a 220-pound man. This is like a 30-pound, like, cheese-it-eating machine. And she wouldn't say Sorry. And I look over at my wife, I'm like, why won't she say sorry? And Amy goes, I don't know. I'm, Where did she get this from? You say sorry. No. So I, I literally just held her floating there. And, uh, and eventually I started to realize that I was, as I was holding her there, trying to get her to say sorry, I was being so angry. I was like, just do it. I'm tired of holding you. You're bugging me. I was saying all sorts of encouraging words to her face. And then I started to realize, okay, wait a second. This is God with me. God brings someone along that loves me and says, man, you're doing this wrong. And I'm like, no! God, you show them why they're wrong. God, come on down. You're on my team. No. God's holding me. Ryan, say sorry. No. I will... I will cross my arms to God and others for days and for weeks. Some of you have that gift, right? We call it the silent treatment. We call it, you know, your mom saying, you should have been a lawyer. That's you. So these things will break apart our community. The good news is that Jesus came to bind us together. Jesus came to bring us something that we could not bring just under the sun on our own. He broke down the barriers. Under the sun, there is no comfort. Jesus came to bring you comfort. The Holy Spirit is called the great comforter. Jesus came because he can speak into our lives through his word. We may have friends that do this, but if you don't get in this book, God won't be able to do it to you. God speaks to us through his word. So whether you're listening to this, reading this, asking yourself, what does God think about this? Your life will not change an iota until you begin to saturate your life in what God has for you. Jesus gives you a purpose. Some of you are thinking, my life doesn't have any purpose right now. God came to give every single person in his family a purpose to live for. Your purpose is not just to go to work from eight to six and come home and Netflix and chill. 
Your purpose is to raise up disciples, whether they're your own children, whether they're your neighbors, whether they're your coworkers, wherever they are, God has a purpose for you, and he wants you to push back the darkness in this world for his glory. The best part of it all is that some people are alone. They have no one to help them up when they fall down. Jesus is the great picker-upper. I don't know about you guys, but I, and I'll close with this. Um, in sports, I was a very, how do you put this politely? I was aggressive. My dad taught me things that are probably not the wisest things to teach. For example, in basketball, when you rebound, the ball comes down, you're not allowed to just swing your torso to elbow people in the face, okay? That's a rule. For those of you who don't know, that's, that's what you do. But what you are allowed to do is grab the ball and pivot quickly with your hips, which has the same effect for everyone that's between 5'5 five five and 5'11. So I can't swing, but I can pivot and hit people in the jaw. Um, when people were posting in on me, you know, you can't, you can't just shove them back out of the key, but you know what you can do? And this is some of the most annoying stuff. You can, you can as you're checking them, hook their basketball shorts and just give them little wedgies the entire game. And you think, you think, well, that's not a big deal. Try getting 100 wedgies in like a 60-minute span of your life. I mean, I would, I would play the most cruel games to people because I, I didn't have Jesus yet. People would uh, fall down, and I'd go to pick them up on the other team and say, yeah, right. This was pre-Jesus Ryan. I mean, if you put me on the court, I'll still do these things to you. But I mean, that's why I don't play basketball anymore because I'm evil and need Jesus. Now, all of those things, that, that's the antithesis of what God does to us. When God and Solomon are talking about here, you needing someone to walk alongside you, Jesus has to be the first person. He's the first person to comfort you. He's there when you fall, he's gonna pick you up. It doesn't matter what you just did. You could have been the most wretched human being. God will say, here's my hand, I'm picking you up. You could be cold and alone. God will say to you, you never have to be alone. I came so that you, can, you will never have to experience the loneliness that you're feeling, that life-shattering, that life-encompassing loneliness. I'm here for you in the darkest moment of your life. And he, he does everything that I did wrong in basketball. He does right in our lives. He picks you up. He holds you. He speaks into your life. He's not envious of you. He gives you all that you need so that you don't have to be envious of others. He gives you all of the security so that you don't have to be afraid. He gives you his hand every time you fall so that you don't have to be stuck on the ground. He never pulls it back as some sick joke. He binds his life to yours so that now when someone confronts you, you can say, my value is not in your opinion of me, it's in God's, and God loves me so I can freely admit that I'm wrong when I am and I can have genuine, open, authentic community. So that's the goal for this week is to have community that lets down our guard if you're not in a community group, a small group, um, unfortunately, mo many of our groups are taking a break for the summer. If you're a man, come to Band of Brothers. It's this Saturday, 7.30 in the morning. I know you're thinking, that is so early. Fine, be lazy. God said it will wreck your community. <laughs> I, said, I don't like getting up at 7.30 in the morning. I'm up at 12, 1, 2 in the night a lot of the nights. 7.30, my eye cream hasn't even finished getting rid of my puffy eyes yet. But... If I want true community, God-centered community, I make the effort. Will you make the effort today? That's the question. Will you get plugged in today? Um, we have small group leaders that are here. Uh, if, you're, if you're in a small group right now, would you just stand up so I could see? If you're in a small group, if you're in one at all, in one at all. So we have women's small groups, 
So if you're next to one of these people and you're like, hey, man, you look kind of cool, grab them and say, hey, tell me about your group. What's cool about it or why does it stink? And get involved in one of their groups. Okay, you guys sit down now. It's, it's really that easy. If you don't like anybody in your small group, try another one. It's, I won't take it. If you come into my Monday night group that meets here and you try it for two weeks and you're like, no, man, we do not like this group. I'll say, that's cool. We're not everyone's cup of tea. We have some crazy people in our Monday night group. No offense, you guys. We're here. I mean, I'm here too. But, but get involved in this type of community. For the love of God, get involved. Let's pray. Father, uh, this, this book is just weighing on me. It's so heavy, but I know that, um, that my day is coming. I know that despair is coming for me. I know that some illness is coming for me, whether it's in my family or in my body. And I know that without this type of community, I will crumble under the weight. God, I know that without people speaking into my life, I will become an egotistical maniac. God, I know that without people there to pick me up when I fall, I will be stuck on the ground. And I know that in the midst, I know that in the midst of everything that is going on in this world, I need a team around me. So I pray that everyone would see the value of surrounding themselves with others who love you, with others who don't bring judgment but bring hope and truth. And I pray that this would all begin with seeing you as our great Savior, the person who always extends a hand, the person who is always with us, the person who will always comfort us. And now my last prayer, God, is that you would make this a church where we don't bring judgment upon others in harsh ways, where we don't put ourselves in your seat of judgment so that we feel better about our lives. Let us all strive to gather at the cross and be thankful for all you've given us. In Christ's name, amen.